You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. I'm JR. Hi, I'm Lee. And I'm Simon. And the subject for tonight's episode is... Oh, no, Mark, by the way. Yes, the subject for tonight's episode is going to be... Oh, no, Mark, by the way. (laughs) Are we all up for talking about Oh, no, Mark, by the way? Oh, yeah, we can do that. Okay, the subject for tonight's episode is going to be the Eighth Doctor. Well, this is funny, isn't it? Because we've done episodes on the Doctors... And we've done episodes on the seasons. But here, we don't have a season. We've just got a single story. And a Doctor Who's only been in a single story. And we are concentrating on television. Hmm. So, essentially, we're doing the whole kit and caboodle for the Eighth Doctor all together in one episode. It does feel like an entire season crammed into an hour and a half, though. Do you think? (laughs) Really? Well, no, feels to me like less than a story. (laughs) <laughs> it doesn't even it doesn't even feel like they got to the end of making a whole story. It just it, okay. We're going straight into the commentary straight away. Straight then. away. <laughs> yeah, why not then? It feels. It, do you know what the TV? Uh, okay, I'm going to break this podcast down into three sections. So I'll quickly preempt before I start talking about this. What the three sections are going to be? I think firstly we should talk about the TV movie itself. And then we should move on into talking about the Eighth Doctor. And then at the end, well, I've got a little sort of extra segment for us to do. And we can perhaps also talk about the Eighth Doctor in other media as well when we get there. But first of all, what was I in the middle of saying? Oh, yeah, the TV movie. It just kind of feels like half a story. Do you know what I mean? They spend mm-hmm. so much time introducing him and introducing her. That by the time the story kicks off, it just kind of feels like it ends before it really kind of gets its feet on the ground. Yeah, story-wise, you're absolutely right. There isn't really much <coughs> of a story there, is there? I mean, if you break no. break it down <clears throat> to its simplest line, it's simply the master um, crash-landing the TARDIS and trying to get all the Doctor's bodies. And that's pretty much it, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and then <clears> there's all the fluff around it, but... Um, which is uh, a lot to well, talk see, about. The, th- the thing of it is, if you look at... Okay, here's a good example. <clears throat> if you look at Terror of the Autons, and this is also what Russell T. Davis did in um, The Sound of Drums, you have the Doctor aware of the Master's presence and the Master aware of the Doctor's presence, And the two characters dancing around one another until they meet at the end of the story. Mm. And actually, both of those stories, both the Robert Holmes and the Russell T. Davis, have a sequence where there's a phone conversation between the two. But not Mm. only is there a phone conversation, there's interaction. The Doctor is dodging the sort of threats posed by the Master, Mm. and the Master is posing threats for the Doctor. But in the TV movie, the Master's not really up to much until the end when he meets the Doctor, and the Doctor's really not dodging anything 
until the end when he meets the master he's just kind of regenerating it doesn't really feel like the two of them are in the same story until right at the very end no, it's like, you remember Evil Knievel on his bike going up a ramp? Mm. If you imagine doing that on a tricycle, it's kind of like, the, that's the feeling I get from it. It's like, it's slowly building up, and then when it gets there, it's an all horrendous yeah, kind of like rush, and then it ends. Well, yeah, but it doesn't feel like it's slowly building up. It feels like it's one thing, and then it's another <laughs> thing. Yes. It doesn't feel like a guy who's going towards a ramp. It feels like a guy who's just kind of cycling around in his back garden, <laughs> and then finds himself on a ramp. See, you you could forgive it for the fact that it was, in theory, a pilot for a whole series. Well, in no, it in wasn't. which case, a... well, the hope was that it was going to go into other things, wasn't it? But well, not all I was going to is... say, you you could forgive it for that. But the fact that they actually resolve it at the end with pretty much the the master dying and being got rid of, uh, so you can't have that argument. So I don't even know why I'm saying it. <laughs> no. Also, of course, Grace leaves and Chang Lee leaves, which was a mistake as well. Uh, well, yeah, it's like it's you set up all the elements for... Well, it, this is the thing. It wasn't a pilot. It was what they call a backdoor pilot. It mm. was a TV movie. It was a one-off. And the people making it were hoping that it would go to a series. The people making it were hoping that it would be successful enough that the studios would say, oh, we've got to have some more of that. And then they'd be able to present them with the idea of a series as a kind of fait accompli. But actually, the networks, the people who were financing it, had no sort of specific inclination towards making a series. They were literally just making a movie. Uh, yeah, they plainly didn't see the the future that Doctor Who could to, could bring them financially wise, and they didn't believe in his uh, his vision. Uh, the guy who brought it well, back. No. Um, and also, I think, I, I think it was pitched against Roseanne, wasn't it? Which was like, oh yeah, biggest... but that comes later. Yeah, We're talking yeah. about what went into actually getting it kicked off in the first sure, place. Sure. Yeah. And of course, the trouble with it is, it's a co-production between sort of all these different elements because there's Fox and Universal involved, as well as of course the BBC. Mm. And you know, at some point or another, Amblin was involved, and oh, yeah. this and that and the other. But the thing is. Any merchandising rights are going to be owned by the BBC. Mm -hmm. You know, the name of the Doctor, the character of the Doctor owned by the BBC. And the Master as well, of course. So while image rights might have been held by Fox, uh, you know, character rights are held by the BBC. So, and this is why there's not been an awful lot of merchandising from the mm. TV movie mm. in terms of, you know, the action figures and that kind of thing. Mm. You don't very often get, because... You know, you've got the Paul McGann figure, uh, but there's nothing else from the TV movie, no. nor is there really likely to be, nor has there ever, nor has the TV movie ever really turned up in sort of other waves of those kinds of merchandising because there's a kind of a complication around those rights. Yeah, I mean, Grace Holloway doesn't turn up in any of the big finishes, for instance, but she, the actor does, obviously, but not her character, which is a real shame, I think. Mm. There's there is a lack of icons, iconic things within. I mean, apart from the master and the doctor himself, there's very little else. And I suppose the design of the TARDIS, there's very little else that could be marketed from it. It's well, so kind of bland, huge isn't it? Mistakes. Even leaving aside the story, there's some huge mistakes. Uh, when I say the story, I mean the plot. But the TARDIS itself, people keep saying, "Oh, that's a lovely set," and you know, it's a nice big set. And it's very sort of old-fashioned and gothic and dark and spooky and all this kind of thing. 
but as a living environment for the Doctor, as a base from which to have your adventures? Is that really the safe place that you return to at the end of a story? I have to say in its defence, though, when I started watching it this afternoon, um, it struck me as to how much how much a huge amount of that movie has filtered through to the new series. A huge amount. That, that yeah, set but... is very, very similar in scale and in a lot of the ideas and in the, the character of the, the console, all of a sudden well, becoming yeah. this... Yeah. But, oh, dear. What happened there? I hate that bit. Look, That's yes, the but, the, but the point is that set, the TARDIS console room, has to be a home, has to be a haven, has to be somewhere that you'd want to be, that you'd want to go to feel safe. And the TARDIS set that they create from the TV movie has got all this great gothic goodness going on about it. But the one thing it isn't is a safe environment. It's got an interesting mix of stuff and styles going on. I mean, the area where Sylvester McCoy starts off, where he's having his cup of tea, it's kind of like, oh, that's quite nice. I like that, actually. That's, yeah, why not? Somebody's front room. Yeah, nice. But, you know, you imagine it whirling around the vortex or getting hit by something. All that stuff's going to be flying everywhere, isn't it? It just yeah, doesn't yeah. make any mm. real sense. Whereas, you know, the later TARDIS, you've got bars that you hold on to because the thing just tumbles all over the place. So, yeah, you're kind of right by saying that it doesn't, it wouldn't feel safe in an armchair, would it, if you're in trouble? You'd be flying out. Yeah, but I'm just, I think you're both missing the point slightly, though. What I'm saying is, you know, it's like a church, right? Like a huge gothic dark church yeah. late at night. Yeah, that spooky, part. scary. You go in there, mm. you're not going to feel. No. You're not going to feel relaxed. It's not a relaxing environment. No, and stylistically, it's it's wrong for the Doctor because you've got even though they've got this kind of vampiric link to the Doctor and the Time Lords because they're like immortals. I think that's what they're possibly trying mm. to edge towards. It's more the Master's TARDIS than the Doctor. When you see the Master at the end of the film standing up and looking, he looks grand, right at he home. He looks right at home. Whereas you're right, the Doctor just doesn't seem at home apart from around the console. <clears throat> the console is kind of lovely in its silliness. Um, and actually, you look at Sylvester McCoy sitting drinking his cup of tea and listening to a record, and then you look at the environment in which he's doing that. <clears throat> yeah, for sure, okay, it's a nice scene, but it doesn't look right. And okay, there's got to be some kind of a disconnect in Doctor Who, because the Doctor's this eccentric alien who looks like a human, but he's not, and you've got to demonstrate that he's not a human. But I don't think you demonstrate that he's not a human by showing him living in that kind of an environment. It mm. just doesn't feel right. There's a, there's an obvious link with the armchair and the fact that he's reading the time machine, though. I mean, the first thing you think of when you think of the prop, the time machine in the movie, is a dirty great armchair, padded armchair, and that I think that's I think that's kind of the psychological link there. I think it's. The idea of this old man traveller travelling through time, and of course he's going to fix an armchair to his time machine. So, I like I quite like mm. the idea that the Seventh Doctor's been through so much and is, has had, a, you know, when it says that line about being near the end of his end of that particular life, that he has settled a bit into this old man routine. Um, I quite like that. Mm, maybe you know Matthew Jacobs because obviously I interviewed him recently. Uh, absolutely hated having to put all those lines in at the start. Yeah, I bet he did. That's such a horrible 
exposition dump, isn't it? And oh yeah, as soon as I heard it, I just thought, oh no, what What are you doing? Just Mm. you don't need that. Just tell the story. Just tell the story. And can I just say very quickly, bats in a TARDIS? Nah, I don't think so. It's a bit more torchwood than TARDIS, really, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I I thought actually I kept thinking Torchwood when I was watching it and thinking the feel of it, particularly you know all the scenes flying around on a bloody motorbike and and all that. Um, I thought this is this is more at home with Torchwood than it is with any it's Doctor like the Who. Like a hub, isn't it? it feels mm. like a hub. Mm, it does. It does. <clears throat> Going back to the subject then of it being potentially a pilot or as they call it a backdoor pilot. In other words, it's something that you sneak past the studios as a TV movie in the hope that it gets picked up as a series. Mm. You're right. You kind of we almost touched on it a few minutes ago and didn't quite go into it. So let's go back to it now. They set up all the elements. They set up the Doctor. Obviously, they start with Sylvester McCoy. So what they're setting up is they're taking the idea of a, an alien who can change his form. And setting up the idea of the form that this character will take in this incarnation of the series. So they're setting up that Doctor. They're setting up his arch enemy as a also regenerated new character for this incarnation of the series. Then they're setting up the companion, the intelligent female companion, the adult companion, who the Doctor can... And this is properly in the sense of the term companion, almost like partner, who somebody he can back and forth off in the dialogue, somebody you can relate to. And also the kid companion, the one almost Adric like, slightly dodgy, mm. slightly wayward, <laughs> needs taking care of, looking after and watching over. You've got to keep your eye on him all the time because of what he might actually. get up to. Yeah. yeah, and this is a character who might be your in into the stories. This might be the character who goes off and gets you involved in the stories. They set up all these characters, which is, if it had gone to a series, these are all the characters that you'd need to carry the series. And then at the end of the episode, <laughs> at the end of the story, they dispense with the entire lot of them. Yeah, which just kind How of... How crazy is that? That is crazy. And that gives um, whoever, the, the network, um, you know, carte blanche just to say, well, actually, there's no carry-on here anyway. So even if we did yeah. fund it, you've, you've, you've finished it. it. Yeah. Where are you going to go with Where it? Where are you going to go with it? And it's, I'll just mm. make a note. I mean, I, when you were talking about Adric a minute ago, I was, I've always thought Chang Lee was the artful dodger that Adric never was. And uh, he would have worked brilliantly uh, in the TARDIS. Mm. Brilliant. Oh, well, except State of Decay. Adric did that in State of Decay. So uh, Chang Lee is the Adric <laughs> of State of Decay. Yeah, but at least Chang Lee can walk properly. <laughs> Adric can't even act walk, can he? Bless him. No, he, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> it is, it is, it's a very strange contradiction, isn't it, this whole thing? Like you say, they spend so long on the regeneration and that for me is the best bit is that whole section where you're getting used to the new doctor because Paul McGann gets to act his socks off and Sylvester McCoy does probably the best performance of his time as a seventh doctor in my view um and they spend so long on that that there's not time for a proper story afterwards if it is a whole uh, uh, an entity in itself yes balanced it is absolutely absolutely in fact yeah. You know, we've said before that the problem with that is you don't start with McCoy because you're confusing the audience, mm. but you're not just confusing your audience. As you say, you're also detracting from any story you're able to tell. I absolutely love the McCoy section, but 
Um, but it's just it, in the wrong it's place. just in the wrong place. It could have been a flashback, actually. That would have been better. But, you, you know, I think everybody's probably thinking now when we first see, you know, Rose enter the TARDIS and uh, and we first see Doctor meet Rose. And that's the way to do it. That was the way to do it through the through the um, companion's eyes. Not mm. uh, as an opening shot of him sitting with a cup of tea and then this blue box flying towards you. There was this thing a few years back where they showed it to some kids. I think Doctor Who magazine did a thing on it and a few Americans as well were responding to it and they couldn't understand that they couldn't get the idea that Sylvester McCoy was actually in the box flying around in space they didn't make yeah. the connection and it's just a bit of bad writing and editing I think on, on well thing. bad mm, that could almost yeah, come back to the idea. that could almost come back to the TARDIS set you were saying Joe it doesn't give the impression of being a ship no no exactly mm. it doesn't no exactly it's static you know, the thing about the old white console even though it may have looked cheap by comparison you probably couldn't have put that on screen as was at least you knew it was a spaceship so if you saw a shot of the tardis going through the vortex and then cut to a shot of that white control room at least even with the disconnect of the one being bigger than the other you would have the impression that they were supposed to be of the same thing mm-hmm. absolutely but you're right you get a shot of the police box and then you get the shot of the inside of a cathedral and you think you've cut to, you know, a bit of planet Earth or something. You know, all it needs is the blue TARDIS doors rather than those huge, great, dirty, great big things. There's no... Yeah. Uh, it's probably all down to bad editing as well. It could possibly have been directed and edited better so that you get that, you know, and at that sort of time they I could have done one of those connect, connecting shots, couldn't they, of going through the police box well, doors yeah. into the set they could have done that i was just about to say that i think jeffrey Sachs actually did a fantastic job of directing it and that's probably the best thing about it mm. in fact and matthew jacob's script is got some fantastic ideas mm. great dialogue and some really sublime sort of literary or what's the word i'm trying to think of some sublime images in terms of the things he thinks up to put in there mm. but of course the trouble with it is because it's a child of so many fathers <laughs> all the other stuff he has to put in on top and yes perhaps if there had just been that one simple shot of the blue box coming towards the screen and then you're going through the doors and into the TARDIS to see Sylvester McCoy that would have sold it and that would have explained it so much better mm. but with the benefit of hindsight you know Visually, it is there's a lot to like in there. If you <laughs> if you can dis- stunning, disconnect, really. it. yeah, it is visually it's very comic strippy, um, particularly like the shot with the fish eye and then the the knife coming down. All those nice cuts. It's 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 really, and it and it, it made me think of a lot of all those eighties things like Big Trouble in Little China. I mean, not just because it was there's that bit in San Francisco, but there is that kind of feel to it, like one of these eighties fantasy movies. That were... Well, what it really wants to be is the X-Files, isn't it? Do you think? I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, in terms of the look, yeah, definitely. You've got the X- it's all after dark. Yeah, you've got almost. the X-Files feel because it is mostly filmed after dark and it was a, it's a bit weird and a bit strange. You've got ER thrown in there for good measure, yeah. haven't you? And also oh, there is that fairy tale thing that Simon was saying. It definitely feels like a fairy tale, even with that, with the ending of bringing people back to life with the magic of the TARDIS. And oh, the that. Superman the movie thing. Ooh, yeah, but um, yeah. which actually doesn't look so hokey now because <laughs> we've had so much regeneration stuff going on uh that's you know regenerating hands and and donna becoming the doctor and all this sort of thing that you you kind of just think oh bringing people back to life yeah okay i'll accept it now but at i the, think at the time it's like what 
I know. Do you know how Matthew Jacobs described it? I can't quote him verbatim, but the sense of what he said was, you know, they were getting towards the end and they needed to end it and everybody had a different idea about what the ending should be and it was like he said essentially that they settled on the compromise that was the least worst idea mm. so which is oh, so whole design by committee thing is just it never works mm. never works well no but the yeah but the the point is the least worst idea is not the best way to sell your story is it <laughs> no. you know we've we've made our story the least bad it could be you know, mm. not we've made our story the best it could be, but the least bad. And which is a shame, because like I was saying earlier, I think a lot of Matthew Jacobs' script is fantastic, uh, especially the dialogue. There's some wonderful dialogue in there. Oh, particularly, yeah, and a lot of, McGann's lines mm. are, are fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I think all of the, I think all of the dialogue's fantastic all the way through. Mm. I think, actually, as a, if you divorce it from Doctor Who, and if you can sort of turn your mind off thinking about what some of the sequences are like the fact that there's a regeneration sort of like a quarter of the way into it if you can just watch it for the performances for the pictures and for the dialogue and the sounds it's actually a fantastic piece of television mm, it is it is i will say that the bit where she goes what what what's the matter he goes these shoes they fit perfectly are one of my favorite mm. bits ever in any doctor who Mm, Even yeah. out of this, you know, this really mediocre episode, it's that, such a doctorish line, yes, and a doctorish sentiment. Mm. It's a, I, tell you what's so perfect about it: these shoes they fit perfectly. Is like in a way describing something in a way that only the Doctor could describe that something, because for anybody else, you wouldn't expect the shoes not to fit. So it's not just about finding the right shoes mm. it's about showing the character yeah. as being somebody for whom that is the significant thing it defines him at that point it kind of shows the world this is who he is he's he's the doctor and mm. he's a bit attention deficit and he's a bit childlike and you know things like that are really important wide-eyed and filled with wonder yeah 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 yeah. these shoes are they, they're brilliant you know uh the world's going to pop but these shoes are fantastic i can work now these shoes work yeah i love it Great line. But he had quite a few fantastic lines. One of my favourite scenes, I think, was in The House with Grace. And she's checking his two hearts. And she's all amazed. And he's just kind of looking at the telly saying, oh, humans, they find a pattern in everything. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, Pacini, oh, that was so sad. And he's just wandering off. And it's very alien. It's very doctor. And that was that was a great moment for me. I just looked at him. And, yeah, you're the doctor now. I, I believe you. <laughs> Yeah, we'll come back to the Doctor in a bit. Mm. Um, there's one thing... Well, actually, before I do, going back to the subject of X-Files, etc. Was that, though, and this would be my assertion, was that a fatal misunderstanding of what Doctor Who was? You know, this TV movie is basically aimed at an adult audience. Not even a sort of... Not even like in the Sayward years where it was kind of aimed at an adolescent audience. This is very ostensibly aimed at an adult audience. Mm. You know, it's sort of half past eight till ten o'clock type mm. movie. Was that the wrong way to go about it? 
I think it probably was. It probably wasn't for the 90s because everything felt like it needed to be like that at that time. But it, mm. for Doctor Who it was. Uh, we know now that RTD got it right. Um, but mm. he and his influence, he said, oh, well, there's there's a bit of Buffy, Vampire Slayer. That's what he kind of used as a, as a bit of a headstone for it. And the X-Files was the wrong, <clears throat> wrong influence. But again, RTD didn't actually make it look like Buffy. He just said, oh, there's a few things in it that, I, that will help me along to get the series kicked off in the right direction. Whereas they seem you know, to be really we... lifting the imagery and the feel of the X-Files and the coats and the, the, the look and the people. And, you know, that... It's what it needed to be. And I don't think this came till afterwards, so it's not a fair comparison for an influence. But it needed to have more the t- more of the tone of something like Firefly. Oh God, something yes. Was a, something that was more lively <laughs> and just cheerful <laughs> and happy-go-lucky. You groaned. Oh, people at with, home with, groaned with pleasure. Yeah, in a no, good way. Think, in a good oh, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what it needed to be. It needed to have you know Doctor Who throughout the entire sort of first maybe fifteen, seventeen years, perhaps had a sort of happy-go-lucky quality and particularly in the early days where the doctor didn't know where he was going to land but it was like and you especially see this with patrick Trown, but i think it's true to a certain extent of all the first four doctors when they're traveling they don't know where they're going to be they're just happy that they're going somewhere and they're excited to see where that somewhere is Mm. and the tv movie doesn't have that i mean that scene with the doctor yes you get it in the character but you don't get it in the presentation of the story you don't get the idea that the story itself is happy to find itself where it is do you know what it's like it's like a crossover it's almost like an episode of a completely different series um you know like when mork from mork and mindy dropped into happy days or <laughs> that's a really funny example but you know what i mean you, know, you get crossover comics but it's almost like a yeah, completely yeah. different series and the doctor's dropped into this environment mm, and mm, and he behaves yeah. how he usually would within this environment and then he buggers off to his usual land like a really good dimensions in time well well this is the <laughs> other point i was going to bring up actually i was going to start this whole podcast with this point but got sidetracked and so i'm coming back to it now but it ties in with what we we're just saying with the whole is it is this made for adults when it shouldn't probably really be made for adults but here's my point it, it probably is right that it was aimed for adults because right here's the thing one of the reasons that british fans always give for the failure of the tv movie in america is thus they will say ah but the americans who liked doctor who in the 1980s liked it for its englishness so what they wouldn't like about the TV movie is that most of that Englishness has been filtered out. Well, that's completely wrong. Mm-hmm. And I will demonstrate why. You know, I was saying, well, it should perhaps be for children, but it's for grown-ups. Well, in Britain, Doctor Who was for children, was watched by children. And it's a mainstream television program. Mm. In America during the 80s, Doctor Who was watched generally speaking quite late at night, by a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the population who were pretty much all adult, or at least getting on for being adult. Most of the people who got into Doctor Who got into Doctor Who during their teens, I think, in America, the way they talk about it. Or, you know, teens or later. So the TV movie is aiming itself at a cult TV audience who are more used to watching Doctor Who as something that's for grown-ups rather than for children. Plus, 
and this is the really big point, it is not losing an audience in America by filtering out the Britishness because the amount of people in America who watched and liked Doctor Who for its Britishness is a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the population. The TV movie is trying to aim for everybody else. So the Englishness issue in the TV movie is the most irrelevant issue of all. Mm. If it had gone for the Britishness issue, it would probably have failed even great, even to a greater extent because, you know, then it really would have been aiming at that tiny, tiny fraction of the population mm. and the mm. audience would have diminished even further. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose there is some lip service to the British eccentricity, isn't there, when you look at the tea and... When you look at McGann and his performance. Yeah, exactly. And then... Jelly Babies and Oh, I'm British. I suppose I am really, Mm. that kind of line. But the feel of the rest of the movie, the story, the characters, the milieu, the quality of the film, the rest of the the production, apart from in the character of the Doctor, all the Britishness has been eked out. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, people say that's a bad thing because it lost its essential Britishness, but it wasn't aiming for that. And that was never part of the plan. No, no. And if it had done, it would have been so much worse. Because can you imagine the Americans trying to do an entire production that aped the sort of British qualities? Mm-hmm. One thing that I would, one thing I would, worse. I would rather was more British was the timing of the jokes. The jokes were in theory funny, but they seemed to feel that they need to be explained afterwards. Um, give you an example, or, or no? I'll give you an example of how one wasn't working. We should got that bit where the poli- the police bike flies into the TARDIS, turns around, and goes back out again. If that was British, it would just be left as being odd. But no, they had to show the the companion reacting to it, going oh, <laughs> and then going in. So you know, ah, God, that gets me. Oh, really? I can't say that's ever been anything that's yeah. troubled me particularly. When you go to hell, Simon, that'll be on a loop for you, along with Kylie Minogue's locomotive. Um, it will be. But I thought the, I thought that the humor was written worked. and directed by Englishmen. Oh, so oh, I don't well, know. No, I thought the humour worked as well. Yeah. It's all down, it, was out, it was down to editing more than anything. You know when a joke just goes on that little bit too much? Or, you know, it's the visual equipment of canned laughter. Yeah, we know it was funny. It was just odd. It was funny. We don't need to see that it was funny because the companion's laughing at it. Please, no. <laughs> okay, Ooh. maybe. You know hot. that the director came out of uh, spitting image. That's where he cut his teeth. So there you go. But, I mean... He, so, he, so he must know something. Yeah, and that wasn't comedy. as funny as people say it was. It was great. Oh, maybe yeah. I didn't watch it. Maybe it was at the time. I don't know. Had its it had its moments, but it wasn't consistently funny. I will say, it's it is a, a real think... massive mixed bag, isn't it? We're, we've 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 taken so much. We've talked so much about it already. Um, Are we talking uh, about spitting image now? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. Uh, no, this this film, thirty minutes in, and we still haven't scratched the surface yet. I don't think. I mean, there's so many layers to it. So many complicated. Not complicated. It isn't complicated, is it? But it's over. It's convoluted. It's overfilled. It's overegged the pudding. And one of the overarching themes, which was quite a nice theme, and you know, uh, which I which you could see blatantly, was the whole thing about rebirth. So you get the Doctor 
been reborn, Master's reborn, Grace is reborn in her character, Chang Lee's reborn in his character, and the show's reborn. And, you know, the whole thing has kind of got this rebirth imagery going on. And, and, and alongside that, this kind of religious iconography, the the crown of thorns at the end and the shroud and coming out from the dead and, you know, his hands splayed out. Who am I? And that kind of cross thing. I mean, where did that all come? Did, did, did Matthew Jacobs tell that, you about why that was inserted? Was that just no, to no, no, no. reiterate the rebirth? No, no, no. He didn't that. That wasn't him. That was largely down to Jeffrey Sachs. Oh right. I think obviously Matthew Jacobs had an idea of what he was doing when he put certain of those elements in, but a lot of those elements were either introduced or else emphasised by Jeffrey Sachs, who. Uh, for example, in that sequence where the Doctor's being reborn and the Master's being reborn, that was two separate sequences that Jeffrey Sachs and the editor got together in the editing room and put together into one sequence showing both things at the same time. Which I think and works, for example, think. Oh, well, yeah, I think yeah. it's great. I think, I think uh, the way it's shot and edited is beautiful. Mm, mm. And that sequence in particular... I mean, it's almost operatic, in a kind of a way. It mm. feels almost operatic, that sequence, yeah. doesn't it? Puccini. But I think the whole thing is... I don't think at any point during the TV movie does the level of invention, the level of intensity... And when I say intensity, I don't mean intensity in a Caves of Androzani sort of a way. I mean the level of intensity of ideas, uh, the sort of frequency and volume of them that sort of turn up on the screen if you know what i mean i think the whole thing from start to finish every frame every scene every sequence every second has got invention and idea and a sense of the person who's directing it and the production team knowing what they're doing in terms of what they put on the screen in terms of how they go about creating something that's watchable the tv movie is very 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 watchable it's very entertaining. And like I say, the only area where it falls down is in terms of how Doctor Who it is. Mm, mm. But I do think they made a wonderful job of getting that thing on the screen. It's just that that thing they got on the screen was not the thing that anybody wanted. Mm, I, I, I don't particularly want to focus on it because it's what a lot of fans go on about and it's, it's a bit boring really. But um, did he say anything about the decision to make the Doctor half-human? Yeah, he did. Because I, mean, yes, I, I feel that I there, was, there was elements introduced that didn't need to be there. Um, yeah, the reason he made the Doctor half human was because he's half Jewish, and he just wanted to reflect a little bit of that in the script. <laughs> it's as simple as that. There's always a, there's always an explanation that no one thought of, isn't there? Yeah. It's. I, I mean, I'm assuming it's more than that. I'm assuming that he, there were certain impositions were made on him, and certain ideas probably presented themselves. Like the half human thing is very Spock, isn't it? Oh yeah, and obviously, yeah. and uh, yeah, and obviously, I think there's a certain element of the production where they were thinking, what, what do we need to include? And something like, oh, this guy's an alien. Well, that's a bit scary. Why don't we do the Spock thing? Because in Star Trek, right, I mean, I don't know Star <laughs> Trek very well, but the impression I always have of Spock is the fact that he's half-human makes him slightly less scary than the rest of his species. Mm. Uh, 
slightly more approachable. There's a, there's so a certain thinking... amount of um, complexity to his character because of that, though, as well. He's, he's got yeah, his... but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking mm. about in terms of how he relates to the audience, how the audience can relate to him. If he'd have been a straight Vulcan, because I'm assuming you've seen other Vulcans in Star Trek. Oh, yeah. And they've all been rather less approachable than Spock. Uh, yes, I guess When I say so, approachable, yeah. I mean yeah. in terms of... in. The way the camera approaches them. Well, I, I would imagine um, Spock's father must have been quite approachable by his mother at some point. Yeah, but that's not the kind of approach I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm not talking about in terms of conversing. I'm talking about in terms of how they're presented on screen, about whether an audience can engage with them. It was plenty about whether an audience can empathise with, care for, emote about a character. And, I, and, you know, going back to the Doctor in the TV movie, I think the reason he was made half-human was so that he wouldn't be too far removed from the audience that they wouldn't be able to empathise with and care about him. Yeah, yeah. And I and I think when, and when Matthew Jacobs said, I made him half-human because I'm half-Jewish and I wanted to reflect that, I think what he really means is, you know, I needed a way to make this character, or perhaps even I'd been told to find a way to make this character somebody that an audience could empathise with. And so I used this thing that's from me and sort of gave it that slight twist to make it a Doctor Who thing and used that to bring the empathy. It'd be interesting, wouldn't it, to see how he may have made the Time Lords, whether he may have made them like a Spock race of people that really just didn't give a fig about the rest of the universe. Because when I, when I was would, yeah. yeah, when I was describing the Doctor earlier in that scene, he he was very alien. He was talking about things that happened in the past and whatever, but he had a very alien quality to him. He was a bit detached from from you know Earth, and by giving that half human thing, maybe in the future that would have gave him a reason to be grounded to Earth and to keep coming back and that sort of thing. There's obviously some other thinking involved, not probably just because... And would have, you know, that would have also been the best excuse he needed for running away from the Time Lords in the first place, mm. for being kind of a renegade from the Time Lords in the first yeah, place. Yeah, outcast. Mm, exactly, outcast because he's an impure. And also and the link with Earth, the uh, mm. why he kept coming back to Earth. Well, that's what Lee just said. Oh, did he? Sorry. Isn't it? <laughs> Well, yeah, probably. <laughs> it was a long time ago, at least a minute. I think, it, yeah, but you could, uh, I mean, arguably, if you are going for a more adult Doctor Who, and not like they didn't ever do this in the original Doctor Who, but in a more overt kind of a way, if you wanted to show the Doctor as being impure Time Lord, if you ever did show him going back to Gallifrey and the planet of the Time Lords, you could actually address that in a way that would have had sort of ramifications about things like racial purity mm, mm. it would have been an interesting angle to tackle things from mm. I mean we're getting into the realms of the TV movies that didn't happen here where it was the Doctor and his father looking for each other across time and space and all this kind of stuff mm. and you know the Master being the Doctor's brother and all this kind of business I thought that was the but next season coming up isn't it mm. well all that stuff is A. Best Avoided but I guess B, if you're going to do that stuff, I think I'd rather have had that somewhere further down the line than starting with it. Mm, absolutely. Do you know what I mean? In the original Doctor Who, you don't find out about the Time Lords for, what, six years? You don't find... Uh, and you don't get him travelling with another Time Lord for... 
God, more than 10 years. Mm. And, you know, the Master's not introduced until eight years in. Uh, you know, you let the series breathe before you start bringing gonna the heavy say, stuff yeah, in. They, they, uh, they don't, there's a few decisions made in this where they've they've kind of ignored the fact that, hang on a minute, this, this show's been running for 25 years. And uh, those things are in place because they grew, they developed in almost an organic way. Um, so they're turning around and saying, well, we're going to do this instead. Well, introduce, are you saying it introduces too much too early? Yes, I think so. And, I think and it tries to... It tries to play the audience in some respects, and you sort of think, well, the reason we're making this is because it is already a successful show. Mm. Um, I know well, you're Russell making the. Russell Davis got it right. Didn't he, he did absolutely improved that you could do. So you know they weren't on a they weren't on a fool's errand with it. They just didn't get it right, and you know the story of the Doctor and the Master fighting this battle between two arch enemies on a, from outer space on earth is not a million miles away from and to choose a not very good example because oh well say transformers where you've got two species of alien robots mm. coming to earth and fighting their big battle right yeah uh, right doctor who the tv movie if you'd have stripped it back to just the doctor and the master arrive on earth and fight an epic battle mm. you'd essentially have the same story mm. as you've got here, but with different plot lines. You strip away all the backstory stuff that you get all the info dumps about to explain, and you just have that very simple story. And then you can fill it in in other ways, and it works brilliantly. And it would have been just as inventive, if not more so, as mm. what we actually got, in terms of you know, the stuff that Jerry, Jeffrey Sachs does and the good stuff that Matthew Jacobs does. You could have had a wonderful, wonderful movie. But, of course, everybody else, all the studios, including the BBC, wanted a piece of it, wanted to make sure that their piece of it was on the screen for all to see. Mm. So you have to have this story that doesn't need to take place in the Doctor Who universe with these characters that need to be introduced to an audience and with this backstory that somebody else is insisting we see and it's like, oh, my God, how much more do you think an audience sitting at home who've never even heard of this stuff can take? It's basically a lovely trifle with all its layers thrown against the wall violently. Which takes us back <laughs> to the very first few episodes of the Blue Box podcast when we had the mentions of the trifle on a pretty much weekly basis, if I remember right. Oh, is it? <laughs> um, what's the story with the Daleks? They're mentioned... Is it a I case of the mention the of the Dalek? Show them. Sorry? They didn't have the rights, but they could mention they them. They didn't have the rights to show them. Oh, right, okay. It was a visual I'm pretty thing. sure. Yeah, okay. Because there were stages during the previous scripts prior to Matthew Jacobs where the Daleks were going to play a big part. But I'm... I'm oh, I may not be remembering this rightly, but I'm pretty sure they didn't have the rights to show them. So they could do the voices and mention them by name but as long as they didn't show the voices and the you know physical uh presence of the daleks together at the same time they could get away with it but i mm. there were problems there that whole section at the start was problematic full stop wasn't it mm -hmm. you didn't need it all you needed to see was this alien snake thing arriving on the planet earth and taking over this human body mm. and then you could have explained who and what that was when 
you know, the master and the doctor come face to face. I could have made this movie 10 minutes uh, long. Basically, the master slips out of his casing as the snake and jumps in Sylvester McCoy's throat. Done. Or not. Well, thanks for sharing that with us, Lee. Well, it's just one of those strange... I mean, when I first watched the film, that's the first thing I thought was, why is it going into the TARDIS console? Why isn't it attacking the Doctor? And then it crashes, crash lands, and then you get this amazingly long and convoluted plot about him taking over his bodies. But simply would have been easier just to jump down his throat, wouldn't it? A, ch- uh, yeah. a child. But how many that. Doctor Who stories <laughs> would have been a lot simpler if the villain had just set the bomb off in episode one that wasn't, rather than no. wait until the end of episode four? But that doesn't make sense <laughs> for the last bit where he's going to take his body by opening the Eye of Harmony. Uh, There's yeah. obviously something special with it. I know. <laughs> you know. Should we talk about yeah. Paul McGann a little Let's bit? Let's talk about Paul McGann. I mean, we have obviously mentioned him, but, you know, we ought to give him a few minutes just to talk about his interpretation of the Doctor, such as we get to see it. Because we don't really get to see an awful lot. No. There's a lot happens in that short space of time. Mm, I think it's a well-rounded performance. I really do. He He feels very well formed within a very short space of time, for me. Mm, maybe <laughs> I have to say my well, okay, but okay, I'll I say disagree this a little bit. Can... Yeah, I just do you want to hear my? I disagree a bit on, because then, yeah. I I think that he hasn't quite got the character in some scenes, and obviously it's not film linear. You don't film a film from the beginning to the end, do you? So his, I just no, feel that there was not. there are some scenes where I think he hasn't quite got it, and then there's some other scenes where he's nailed it. There's a few at the end actually, I think, where he's the last few scenes of the TARDIS. He just looks like the Doctor. He's pretty strong. Maybe that's the character getting stronger and Paul McGann's a great actor. But I just, I don't know. It just, it, he is, and I really love him, by the end of the film. Got to say he is the Doctor by the end of the film. But there are moments where I just mm. kind of think, is he knowing what he's, does he know what he's got himself into? He looks a bit kind of lost. See, I don't dislike Paul McGann. He's one of these actors, though, that I've always been slightly unsure of because he never quite convinces me of anything. Do you know what I mean? Mm. If you look at Withnell and I, for instance, it is the way that um, Richard E. Grant and Ian McNeese, is it? No, uh, not Ian McNeese. Oh, you know who I mean, Uncle Monty. Richard Griffiths. Richard Griffiths, that's who I meant. You know, Richard E. Grant and Richard Griffiths dominate that movie with their performances and Paul McGann is in between being a very quiet presence in that film Mm. and you know everything I've seen him in he's never quite convinced me that he means it do you know how some actors are guilty of acting and yet some actors just inhabit the character Mm-hmm. Paul McGann to me is always somebody who's acting rather than inhabiting, inhabiting a character and in the TV movie it's the same I don't think he gives a bad performance I just by the end of the TV movie I'm not convinced that he is the Doctor I I like his um, oh what's the word it's kind of distance there's a certain distance from what's going on and I like that it's almost a dreamy quality to him Detached. Yeah, that's the maybe, word. but I don't. Yes, but a detachment. I, I, no, I mean, I'm I love not. the scene in the lift when he first meets. He, he's, he's standing next to Grace in the lift, and 
I know you, and I just, I just really think it works. Works for me. I'm not saying it's a great performance, but it works for me because he, he's another doctor. He's another different doctor. He's not, he's not human. And yeah, um, but to me, he feels like a. He feels a bit like Peter Davison. I do think Paul McGann was probably miscast in the end, and. It, you know, the other actor that often gets mentioned for that is Anthony Head. I no disrespect to Paul McGann, who I like, you know, in spite of what I've just said, I would so much rather have seen Anthony Head's take on that. Really? Hmm. I'm not yeah, sure. I really would. Hmm. I don't know. Um, Anthony Head is somebody I adore. I think he's a brilliant actor. I'm not sure, though, but he has been mooted quite a few times as being possible doctor in the past but um yeah do you know, know. i think do you know i think anthony head has that i don't think paul mcgann does he charisma. inhabits the character and he's got charisma that was yeah <laughs> well charisma i think to be a to be a doctor and this is the whole john nathan turner colin baker thing that we talked about was it last week you don't just need ability you need charisma and paul mcgann has looks but not charisma um yeah he has Mm, that's hard, isn't it? Because he has got charisma of a sort, but it's not possibly the kind that you need for somebody who's got to be the doctor. It's not a maybe. It's it, a, maybe it would have grown. The, you know, he would have acted more. Like you say, maybe he's not born to play the part, but he would have found his. Well, feet, this is what I mean. Like Sylvester McCoy. When I say you say he would have acted it more, I that's entirely the point. He would have acted it more, but that's not it. If you're going to be the Doctor, you've got to be it more, not act it more. This is why Patrick Troughton and Tom Baker are so successful, because even though they are performing, they are performing from a very deep place that they are giving of themselves, rather than, you know, Paul McGann's acting always feels at a distance from the material, whereas with Patrick Troughton, Matt Smith... Uh, Tom Baker, even David Tennant, you don't feel the matter removed from the material. You feel that their performance is coming right from the very centre of their being and is really embracing the material. Mm, I really didn't get that with Paul McGann. That's a fair point. Um, I I enjoy the distance he gives the alienness to it. But yeah, I I appreciate the point you're making. Um, And you're probably right. You're probably right. But for the period of that episode, I think it works quite well as as being a new Doctor. Maybe that's why I think it I think works. He, I think he gives a nice job. I think he does a lot of nice things. I think it's, you know, his take on the alienness of the Doctor and his take on the potentiality for romance, perhaps, of the Doctor or for becoming involved with this human woman is all very nice. But I just don't feel it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. But, you know, don't be. <laughs> I thought, well, I was going to say at the start of this episode that I was going to move on at the end into something that I kind of amused myself with. An idea I had, what was it, maybe 90 minutes before we started recording? Mm. <laughs> that I brought this up, like a little game for us in a way, I suppose. And I was going to uh, mention that at the start of the episode so as to tease the listener that something amusing was coming before the end and I forgot. So I'm mentioning it now and we're going to have it in about 
Ooh, 90 seconds. So there's a teaser. Are we just yeah. waiting the 90 seconds now? <laughs> okay, no, there's an email. I just wanted to I'll do an then. email first, that's why. Uh, this is from Robert Mamone, or Mamoni in Australia. And he says, um, did anyone, because he, he wrote about the TV movie, he learned that we were going to do this episode just before, just a few days ago. He says, did anyone involved in the production on either side of the Atlantic really think it would progress to a series? It rated very well in the UK when screened, but without a green light from the Americans, there was no series. And without decent ratings... And how possibly could it have gotten those in a market with zero knowledge of the show? It would never have progressed to a series in the States. It seems to him like the entire enterprise was one vast vanity project for Seagal, Philip Seagal, the producer. Actually, that's an interesting point. The producer really, really fought very hard for quite a number of years to get this off the ground. Mm. That's why, in that's a way, why I, I assumed it was all work, working towards making a whole series of it. Because I thought, well, why, why else would you do it? Oh, yeah, but the point um, that Robert's making that I'd like to just address slightly is the producer, Philip Segal, and the amount of work he put in to get that, the amount of time he spent to get Doctor Who off the ground. And in the end, made such a bad fist of it. And I think Robert's saying, did he do this because he wanted to be seen as the man who saved Doctor Who and obviously of course he didn't but that's how he would like to have gone that's how he would have liked it to have gone isn't he is there is there a point at which he says no what's going to be happening with Doctor Who if it's born in this way is not good for the series perhaps I should let it alone but no he continues and continues and continues until eventually he creates something that is you know at such a remove from the series it came from that it's almost laughable in a way that this is actually Doctor Who. So do you know what I mean? Yeah. Is there a point at which it was more about him saving Doctor Who than it is about Doctor Who being saved? There may have been. I mean, we don't know because we don't know him and he probably wouldn't say that, would he? But I think, oh, no, ironically, it kind of gave Doctor Who a shot in the arm. You know, in those wilderness years, we needed something else. And Paul McGann came along, for better or for worse. Um, he was introduced to us, and we got this whole clutch and run of Big Finish and BBC Books, and it kind of reinvigorated a lot of people. And we just we just really wanted him to come back, really wanted him to come back. And, of course, yeah, you know, I think you know... RTD possibly, you know, if you, he cites the film as being pretty good and a big influence on him in certain ways. You know the kissing and the romance and all that sort of stuff that was kicked off on the from the film. That all made a big difference to the way RTD was going to show the new Doctor Who. So maybe if we hadn't have had the movie, we may not have had the same kind of Doctor Who now. So I'm I'm glad it was made, I, as even though it was a big ball of mess. But I think the Curse of Fatal Death was a far bigger influence. To be honest, <laughs> really. Yeah, but I... That's maybe a subject for another time. I've written about... And, and Dimensions in Time. I think you could have dispensed with a TV movie and just by having Dimensions in Time and Curse of Fatal Death, you could still have arrived at Rose. And I wrote about that in the magazine a few months ago, didn't I? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think certainly the design of the new series, though... Uh, has taken a lot from the film, from the TV movie. Do I really you do. Really think so? I do I really think, think so. Completely the opposite way. Do you? 
Well, I think the scale yeah, of the totally TARDIS, the, 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 the TARDIS console room, the scale of it is very similar. The Oh, it was always going to be big. Do you think? Well, of course it was. When they bring back a multi-million pound new series of Doctor Who, they're not going to give them a crappy little 50p console room made out of a few white <laughs> flats and a bit of cardboard, are they? No. Of course the console room's going to be big and dramatic. But there's also the quirky forget. side to it as well, all the different levers and, and the different sounds and the little the comedy aspect of the TARDIS. I mean, yeah, you've got the little Millennium Falcon thing where he has to thump it to start it again, but... Uh, is there any of that really in the TV movie? There is a bit, at least at the end. And there's a lot of that, the ruler, the noise. There's a lot of that going on, so that becomes a recurring joke. Sorry? It becomes a recurring joke, that sound effect. It's, it happens about three or four times, doesn't it? The the oh, really? The flip ruler sound, yeah. Believe me, I watched it earlier this afternoon. It is. It's in there a few times. <laughs> to the point and where... Is that in the new series, though? Oh, no, but I'm saying that there are, you know, little things like the pump that he pumps up and the telephone, you know, the, the, the 80s telephone and the, um, yeah, and the keyboard and... Uh, but in every other respect, I think the new series, especially Russell T. Davis's cartoonish version of it, mm. is a million miles removed from the dark, atmospheric, X-Files-influenced TV movie. Mm, okay. I don't think they could be more different. Okay. Fair dues. I was just watching it this afternoon and I thought, oh, that's the same as a new series. That's the same as a new series. Oh, it really is, you know, the look of it. Are we talking about awesome. superficial things? Are we talking Oh, yeah, talking no, about... I am. I'm talking surfacey things. I'm not talking the heart of the programme. I do think. Oh, well, I'm talking more intrinsic things. Yeah, really. yeah, no, fair dues. Um, do you want to go on to do the little. Well, here's the thing. I said. You know, this afternoon I was thinking about this and I thought we're going to talk about the movie and McGann didn't go to a series. And of course, like I said, it was a what they call a backdoor pilot. So there was never any there was never any probability, only ever a possibility of it going to a series, let's say. But obviously there must have been the people who were working on it must have been thinking, what would we do if it was a series? And there uh, were lots of, during those early 90s, pictures for a potential series and all this kind of stuff. And one thing that's always been talked about, and it always struck me as an interesting idea, and one that would make most fans tear their hairs out. So, obviously, to me, this is an amusing and a right to a bull, idea. yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But. So, here's the little task I, I set for us. I don't think I was the only one who had time to do it. So, But we can go through my choices and discuss them just a little bit. Um, I said, if the McGann thing had gone to a movie and you were doing sort of 42-minute American episodes filmed in Vancouver, but maybe by and large set in uh, the United States... And if it had been a series of remakes of classic series stories, what stories would best translate into an American version of the series from the classic series? Mm. And actually, the example I gave of something to potentially think about was the Dalek Invasion of Earth. Mm. Because if you transpose it from London to New York, say, you can pretty much do the same story, mm. probably change the ending somewhat, but you could pretty much do the same story, and it's a kind of a universal theme. Yeah, absolutely. 
And I've... <clears throat> well, I've kind of just got that kicking things off in my version of the remakes as a Paul McGann series. Because I think if you show a sort of devastated Earth and the Doctor and the Daleks in it, you're introducing the concept in a much better way than they did in the TV movie itself. Mm. So I think that would be a great way to start a series. It would have been brilliant, actually. And I think uh, the Americans would have really loved the imagery of a ruined and future New York straight away. Mm. You know, you could land, you could, oh, yeah. you could, you know, the, the, the camera would just sweep through the city streets and you'd think, wow, look at this. Well, it's the kind of thing that became a staple of movies a few years ago yeah. in the yeah. uh, wake of Independence Day, isn't it? Yeah, and 28 Days Later, of course, you know, deserted cities and things, yeah. But mm. um, oh yeah, but I'm talking specifically about big blockbuster Hollywood, big blockbuster Hollywood movies, yeah. that, like destroying famous American landmarks, alien invasion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you think they'd have had the? Would you have had the flying saucer on a string? <laughs> I wouldn't have had a flying saucer on a string, <laughs> but you can imagine that with mid '90s special effects, okay. So they wouldn't have had a great deal of budget for. Yeah, please with the sound effects. They wouldn't have had a great deal of budget for special effects, but it only takes a couple of plate shots to set your scene. Yeah, Dal and then you can Daleks across the Brooklyn Bridge, of course. Mm. Yeah, and then you can set most of the rest of your story in your studio locations or your sort of localities mm. where you generally film with a bit of rubble strewn about, and you would have sold this story. Oh uh, yeah, totally. That in much the same, in much the same way that as actually they did in the original production with those you know, that day's worth of uh, location filming that they edited in. So would you have used that as the introduction to the Daleks, that particular story? I'd have used that as the introduction to everything. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, mm. that's what I'm saying. I mean, obviously you'd have had the TV movie first, but I'm saying had it come back as a TV series, like however long it takes to produce, so maybe nine months later, mm. you really need to start again from scratch. Yeah, You yeah. don't need to introduce the character of the Doctor, but everything else you pretty much need to introduce from scratch. So I just said, the Dalek invasion of Earth, great way to start that series. And here's the thing, because the first two Dalek stories are the Daleks and then the Dalek invasion of Earth, people seem to assume that you need to have the Daleks in order to have the Dalek invasion of Earth. But you don't need an origin story for your alien invasion story. No, you know, you no. didn't need an origin story before you had Independence Day mm. or, you know, um, I'm trying to think of some of the 50s sci-fi movies, Invaders from Mars. There's no origin story on Mars first. You just have Invaders from Mars. The Dalek invasion of Earth could easily have stood up as an introduction story for the Daleks. Mm. Yeah, well, there's no chronology between that and the first story anyway, is there? In fact, it's a reverse Absolutely chronology, none. so, yeah. Mm. No. Yes, it's purely cosmetic. Right, and then I kind of... I mean, I didn't really come up with much of an order for these, but I decided to put them into an order after I'd written a list of ten. I just set myself the task of choosing ten stories from the classic series that I thought might make interesting stories in an American series and so I've decided to put them future past present like uh, in a Russell T Davis series just for the sake of it so next I'm having well I thought you've got to have one on a spaceship right or in the future or with robots or something like that so well I thought about robots of death and I thought about the arc in space and then I thought no, kind of put the two together and set the two aside. And actually, the arc. Oh, Can right. you imagine the arc? 
if it had been done instead of with monoids but with robots rather like the robots of death mm. where halfway through the arc the robots rebel yes yes so if you take the arc in space and the robots of death and put them two together the arc now that would have been an entirely in-studio production so it wouldn't have been too expensive you know you'd have had a few special effects of the spaceship etc mm. and you'd have had some nice robot costumes build some nice sets and essentially you've made something relatively cheap look fairly expensive and you've got the doctor off in space but of course it being the ark it has an american crew of american people going much as the americans did to a new world which becomes analogous not just for where americans have come from but also enables americans to relate to the actual people on the ship so I thought that would be a great second story because it brings you into the concept of Doctor Who being able to go away from the Earth and do other things apart from in the present day in a way that involves the audience rather than in a way that puts them off. Didn't, uh, remind me, uh, didn't somebody have a cold or something and it wiped out a whole load of people? Or was that the sense rights? Yeah, it did. Yeah. And I mean, you could have had that. And in fact, that would have been a nice way yeah. to get the robot revolution underway, mm. perhaps. When I say I'm thinking of stories that would have been, that would have worked in America, I'm only talking about the barest bones of those stories. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying you do a, I'm not saying you do a straightforward remake in America. Yeah, I'm saying work, you though. take the barest story ideas and rewrite it for mm. an American series. As yeah. long as the robots had one eye and uh, a very bad fringe, that would that would work brilliantly. I yeah, I think we could have managed that. <laughs> now, here's the third one. This one's probably going to interest you, Lee. I thought... Then, of course, you've got to have historicals, right? But I thought the way to introduce the historicals is by having a little fun with the concept first. So, well... Have you ever read Mark Twain's A Connecticut Yankee in um, New York? Uh, no, no, no. It's um... Oh, is that what it is? Yes. And then they filmed it as a Spaceman and King Arthur, didn't they? That's it. Yes. So you take that sort of an idea and do the Time Warrior. You do the Time Warrior as the sort of mm. comedy fish out of water. When I say comedy, I don't mean straight comedy. So you have an element of it being a dangerous ele mm. alien. But you also have a slightly comedic fish-out-of-water element with it. Mm -hmm. So you have the Sontaran crash-landing into pre-Civil War America and the kind of complications mm. and plots that ensue from that. Yeah, that's one of the, that was one of the only stories, really, that I kind of thought straight away that that would work. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, you you can be a bit timey wimey with it as well, and uh, there's no reason not to completely eliminate the the future kind of um, professors oh, no, and no, things no, like I'd that. I'd have gotten rid of that altogether. Yeah? I would have just made it a Sontaran in pre Civil War America. Oh yeah, just go straight for the jugular. Yeah, <laughs> remember you got to do this in 42 minutes as well. Which is... True, you can eliminate. You're right. You can eliminate all of that mm. future stuff. So maybe the Sontaran like a mixture of that and the Sontaran experiment, maybe. Uh, yeah, possibly, possibly. <laughs> but like I'm saying, in the arc, for instance, you can have the cold plot as the subplot that kicks off the robot revolution plot, in a way. Mm. And, you know, that's your first sort of seven-minute segment before the first adverts. And that's the whole first half of the arc mm. dispensed with in seven minutes. Exactly. You know, that that kind of thing. 
But I think if you were to do the Time Warrior like that, you would have to sort of... You'd have to forget the sort of jump into the future thing. You'd just have had him maybe repairing his ship, but having mm. to take some time to do it. Mm. Now, that that would be quite fun <clears throat> to watch, I've got to say. I hope somebody's mm. taken note and, and they're going to be doing animations of these <laughs> on <the> YouTube. <laughs> this is never going to happen. Uh, look, the next, we'd better start winging through these because we're going on for rather a long time. Present but, day? Um, yeah, back to the present day. And after this, I start, sort of mix it up slightly, but back to the present day. And the thing I thought next is, and I'm keeping an eye on the budget here. Can, I second, be, can we second guess you? Yeah, if you like. Well, me and Simon both looked at each other and said Silurians. Ah, no, ah, but interesting. Not it. too many miles away. No, the body swap thing. And if I say that, you'll say... Body swap? Uh, um, yeah, Terror of the Zygons. Oh, of course, yeah. Yes, that's the... <laughs> keeping the budget under wrap, you know, keeping the budget under um, control. And also the body swap thing. I think that would work really well in a sort of American version of the series. Mm-hmm. So I'd have gone for Terror of the Zygons. Silurians mm. is an interesting idea, maybe for later on or in another series. Yeah, well, I think I think yeah, the Silurians from the um, interestingly being American made. You've got that analogy for uh, the Native Americans. Really interesting idea of taking it to another level. That there's some, you know, there were people there before the Native Americans. Um, yeah, just oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, you're right. Yeah, that yes, you're right. That would have worked really well. Okay, I get rid of Terror of the Zygons and put the Silurians in its place. <laughs> You've persuaded me. Thank you. Uh, next one after that, back into history again. And this time, right, this is going to sound mad when I say the title, but when I say what I, uh, why I've come up with that title, you'll understand. The Reign of Terror. And when I say The Reign of Terror, I do not mean anything to do with the story The Reign of Terror. I merely mean a political intrigue episode set during the American Civil War. Mm, yeah. And this would be a pure historical, no aliens whatsoever. It would be the one pure historical in the series. But I think an American series would and could happily do that. Yeah, yeah. Oh. I think an American series would have embraced that concept. Well, so you've only got to look at the holodeck in Star Trek Next Generation and they, they started doing that. I think that, mm. I think I don't think they managed to avoid the science thing altogether, but the, I think there was a few attempts well, look at, at it. Is it Crime Traveller where he just goes back in time to various bits of recent American history and there's no other real science fiction element? That, am I right? Is this right? I think so. Uh, Quantum Leap did it yeah. a bit as well. But, um, oh, Quantum Leap. Perhaps yeah. that's what I'm thinking yeah, about. I mean, you could have, same deal, you could have something going on in the Prohibition era as well. It's got that. Yeah. There's a lot of, well, there's a lot of depth to it, so you could have some intrigue and some political You'd probably have one of these in each series, yeah, yeah. is what I'm essentially saying. Well, I'm come, I've come up with ten, so if you had series of ten, you know, you'd have one each year, whatever. Right, the next one after that, Again, I've come up with a title and then put on a spin on it that's not quite what Doctor Who did. But the next one after that, The Green Death. But by way of uh, giant ant movies like them, mm. you basically do The Green Death with basically a bit of sort of ecological, environmental, political content. Mm. But it would be an excuse to have a monster episode with giant beavers, bugs, giant <laughs> bugs. 
Giant Whatever. beavers. <laughs> Not giant beavers. Oh, damn. Uh, no, uh, I reckon... <laughs> sorry. No, giant ants. Brilliant idea. But, you know, did you ever see the film Phase 4 or the one with the house with all the ants? Well, we talked about we it did, the didn't other we? Day. we did, we did. So, yeah, loads of small ants to begin with, you know, with a giant hive mind somewhere as well. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe you could do that another time. But I just think the Americans would really bite for a sort of giant bug movie. Mm. An American, I might sound patronising, but I just, you know, it's the kind of thing nowadays, particularly since things like um, Independence Day, you know, blockbuster movies in America now. Prior to Independence Day, blockbuster movies in the summer season tended to be action thrillers of the sort of con air, the rock variety. And then Independence Day changed that. And now you have to have the special effects as well. And I know we're talking 1996-97, so it had been just about pre-Independence Day, but I just think a giant bug episode would go down a storm in the middle of the series, especially after something more serious like the American Civil War episode. Agreed. Like the idea. Okay. The one I put after that is, and I wrote The Edge of Destruction, but I'm thinking more journey to the center of the TARDIS perhaps but I'm thinking at this point in this series you've got to get back into outer space again but this is not a a series that's got all that much budget so what you do is you set it inside a spaceship again and you've not really explored the TARDIS so do an episode that explores the TARDIS and why not since the master got gobbled up by the TARDIS have him as the main enemy that's finally getting in the works of the TARDIS. It's actually more powerful yeah. than we think he is. Yeah. And this could be sort of two-thirds of the way through your series. This could be the point at which the Master's reintroduced. And, uh, well, maybe from this point onwards, there can be a little Master arc towards the end of the series. Because actually the idea of the Master ties in quite nicely with the next two stories I've picked. Which are, and this will shock you, but Mordrin Undead. <laughs> well, uh, for the time paradox, yes. we've not done a time paradox yet, no. and it's a t- it's a time travel series. Rather than throwing people straight in at the deep end with Day of the Daleks, do something where the time paradox is kind of incidental. And if I were to do Mordrin Undead, I would tie the strands of the story together rather better. Bit of a time paradox set in modern day America's recent past. And, okay, rather than throw in Mordrin, throw in the Master, still after the Doctor's bodies, and this time paradox can be a subplot wrapped around the A-plot of the Master trying to steal the Doctor's future bodies. Yeah, I mean, that's that's as skinny as you can get, because Mordrin's a, a bit of a mess, really, isn't it? If you look at it. Um, I, I get what you're saying. When would you set Just it? Take the... When would you set it? Just out of interest. 70s New York? Funky town? Oh, you could... Well, the t- you know, it's a six-year differential in Mordrin. It doesn't need to be a six-year differential. It could be set between 1993 and 1963. And it could, it could be all go back to the future, pre- couldn't it? <laughs> well, yeah. Well, that's the point. When I say Mordrin Undead, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm literally saying do a part- time paradox story. More like, yes, Back to the Future is a great example. Mm-hmm. Something time paradoxical like that but not that involves Daleks and that involves monsters, something that's uh, got a human interest element. Wow. The rock and roll years it is then. 
Mm. <laughs> Being really, yes, but that's, that is what I'm saying there. Time paradox story with the human interest. Mm. And yes, perhaps with the master who comes in for a little mini arc mid-series here. And because the next story after that I picked was the time meddler. Well, perhaps you make the master your time meddler. Because I think the time meddler is a really interesting concept of somebody that goes back into the past and tries to alter the future so mm. that it's more beneficial to him. So in the time meddler, instead of going back to the Battle of Hastings, you'd go back to Columbus Landing in 1492. Yes. yes. Wipe out Columbus what a great idea. and make the sort of influx of Europeans into America never happen. So the master or the time meddler or whoever it is has gone back there wants mm. dominion over the natives in America because thinks that will be easier than the sort of Europeans who subsequently invade and settle so but obviously this doesn't come to pass but the so the 42 minute story takes place as he's trying to repel columbus and the doctor needs to make sure columbus lands safely with john lennon because you've got to have an english element to it surely maybe on the way through to back through the past <laughs> you know the master accidentally picks up john lennon so imagine that john lennon in the past 1492 with the master and the doctor great stuff have you lost? Yeah. No, 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 no. I just, no, I was just playing, obviously. But if you think about the, because because what you're saying so far is that every episode is, is very American, very Americanized, American looking. Mm. Um, but well, that's the whole may, point. Yeah, yeah. But it may not have necessarily been that case. They may have tried to well, emulate I'm, something from Europe, something from Britain. You know, well, at I'm some using point. the TV movie as a template here. Oh, I'm no. saying it's an American series with just the one British character in, mm -hmm. a bit like uh, a bit like Anthony Head's character in Buffy. Yes, they never went to Britain, did they? <laughs> no. no so won't. I'm saying this is an American series. This is taking these stories and making them American. So this is kind of the point, Lee. This was kind of the point of the exercise. Okay. Well, Lennon lived in New York, so grab him at a later stage. But he's dead. It's a time travel episode. <laughs> yes, but you've got somebody going from 1997 to 1492. I'm just thinking the, the temptation would be there to do something with Abraham Lincoln, wouldn't they? They really would. Oh, yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. You know, if this... Uh, you know, we're talking completely conjecturally. Yeah. If that indeed is a word. But yeah, there's room, once you've got these concepts established to do things with all these things. Mm, mm. But my concept was I picked specific stories from the classic, classic series, series yeah. that I thought you could spin into an American version. Mm, mm. And the final one I came up with, just purely because it doesn't have to be as crap as the original, but the idea is good, and it would make for a potentially thrilling, exciting finale, and expensive, this is where you'd save the money for, The Chase. The Daleks chasing the Doctor through time, through past and future American history. Mm. And yeah, yeah. No offence to American listeners, but I imagine the Americans, or certainly the American studios, would love that, wouldn't they? The opportunity mm. to delve into American history. Oh, absolutely. See, I've tried not to be patronising with this, but tried to think of it in... I've just tried to think of the TV movie and map classic series stories onto the TV movie, really. That's what I've done. Mm, mm. 
Absolutely. I just thought it was an interesting exercise. And actually, the more I started thinking about it, the more interesting an exercise I thought it was. So it's, I've quite enjoyed doing that. Yeah, well, that was really good, actually. enjoyed that. The chase, I think, is a great, great idea. But also, you probably wouldn't need to change too much about it because you've got, you know, the kind of future Disney theme park going all a bit Absolutely, wrong. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. You know, and you've got the Marie Celeste, which actually you could just make it the Marie Celeste. So there's a lot of things. And the pyramids, yeah, why not? you know, yeah. Yeah. just film it in the desert, like Stargate. So you can get away with it, yeah. I'll tell you another one actually oh, yeah. that would work really well and would go in well actually these days it would go down well with the the current spate of zombie movies is Inferno would probably work quite well in an American setup. yeah actually that's not a bad idea yes Parallel Worlds yeah 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 well, a Parallel World and an accident of some kind drilling operation perhaps but not necessarily a drilling operation. It could be a nuclear accident. Yeah, that yeah, absolutely. Causes the local community to turn into zombies and throws the doctor off into a parallel world. Mm, mm. Well, that would be really good, actually. That would be very the Inferno good. Inferno syndrome. Yes. <laughs> um. Are any any more ideas, you two, or shall I do a couple of emails and we'll get off? Uh, let's do some emails, shall we? Okay. Um. This is from Doc Whom. He says, here's something that occurred to me in an idle moment last night and which I can't recall being mentioned in the various discussions about John Hurt. The general fan consensus seems to be that he will be the incarnation who caused the genocide which ended the Time War and that the other Doctors were so appalled at this crime that they deemed him unworthy of the name Doctor and shut him away in some corner of their memory, perhaps in the uh, Hurt Locker. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> But this has all happened before. Uh, this is from Doc Hoom, by the way. Doc Hoom carries on. Dr. 10.5, the tenant doppelganger grown from his own hand, wiped out the whole Dalek race in Journey's End, but the very worst he received was a few distrustful sideway glance, glances from the Doctor and a warning to Rose that, such was the enormity of this crime, someone would need to keep an eye on him. So the John Hurt Doctor wipes out the Daleks and the Time Lords, and he gets wiped from history as a punishment. Yeah, Doctor Ten. Sorry, sorry. I was, Doctor... was going to say he doesn't even get a blonde, does he? Oh, I was about to make the same joke myself after I'd read the next sentence. Oh, you sorry, bastard. <laughs> <clears throat> so the John Hurt Doctor wipes out the Daleks and the Time Lords, and he gets wiped from history as a punishment. Doctor Ten Point Five wipes out the Daleks and gets given to Rose as a substitute boyfriend. That's a little disproportionate. <laughs> particularly as the worst punishment the Master gets for wiping out a quarter of the universe in Logopolis is the Doctor begging him to regenerate so that he won't be left lonely. <laughs> this, this assumes, of course, that the Daleks and the Time Lords were indeed wiped out by the Doctor to end the Time War. That's certainly the implication of Series 1, where Doctor 9 repeatedly talks of Gallifrey being burned dead and millions of Dalek ships burning. But in Series 4, Russell T. Davis seems to change this to the Doctor time-locking the Daleks and the Time Lords in order to contain the Time War. The latter would bizarrely remove all justification for Doctor Nine's post-war trauma in Series 1. What do we think happened? That the Time War is still going on within its time-locked bubble? Or that the Doctor really did end the war with a double genocide and then time-locked all the events of that war to stop anyone reversing the genocide? And that's from Doctor Who. And on that last point, we did actually discuss that a few weeks ago, didn't we? And we came to the conclusion that it was the latter of those two solutions he's presented us with there. 
Yeah. It really is genocide. Yes. And then he's time-locked the genocide and everything that led up to it so that nobody can change it. Exactly. That makes yeah. perfect sense. Yeah. Uh, love the idea of uh, John Hurt wiping out the Daleks and the Time Lords and getting wiped from history and Dr. 10.5 wiping out the Daleks and getting a girlfriend for his troubles. <laughs> But then you have to say it may have been an even worse punishment for John Hurt if he'd have had to go off with Billy Piper at the end. Just kidding. Oh. <laughs> that was a bit naughty. Couldn't help myself. I wouldn't mind. Uh, Gary Davison says, Hi, sorry, not written for ages. Been ridiculously busy with work, but I've been keeping up with the Blue Box podcast and have also managed to attend the BFI screening of the Robots of Death. Tom Baker was amazing. Still my doctor. Went to the Doctor Who prom with my four-year-old, she loved it, and have managed to get tickets for the BFI screening of the TV movie and the Doctor Who celebration convention on November the 23rd, including a photo with Matt Smith. Very excited by the choice of Peter Capaldi for the 12th Doctor. Not the choice I expected, but what I'm looking forward to seeing developed. Perhaps the new Doctor Clara will hark back to the third Doctor, Joe Grant, parental relationship. Actually, mm. you know what? Since he's brought up Third Doctor and Joe Grant, I've just been struck by a thought, so I'm going to interrupt him. You know, we talked about, <clears throat> or when we, maybe we didn't, but I'm sure we have, about whether the Doctor and Joe Grant's relationship was romantic rather than parental. Because one thing I hate is people shipping and thinking that they can see something sexual in the relationship between the Third Doctor and Joe Grant. Mm. But there's a line in The Green Death when Joe Grant goes off and and John Pertwee says, the fledgling has flown the coop. That is not something you say about somebody you're romantically involved with. That's what you say about a child, mm, somebody mm. you've been looking after. So at most, so no... at most with Joe, it would be like a crush on your teacher, maybe. Yeah, mm. but I don't think even that. Mm. Or maybe from her, yeah, maybe perhaps a crush from her. Mm. But from him, absolutely nothing whatsoever. So, you know... Oh, the people who can see romance in the relationship between those two. No, mm. please, <laughs> keep it to yourself. Anyway, back to Gary's email. Not to say I'm keen to hasten the fall of the 11th, as I've loved Matt Smith's tenure. His portrayal has always been totally believable as an old man in a young man's body, and I will miss that. I found the Moff's recent comments as intriguing as always. Uh, Stephen Moffat said... One of the horrors of regeneration is a certain amount of his persona alters entirely. His appetites and his enthusiasm will change. And that's sort of what I'm writing about now in Matt's last episode. The fact that he's terribly aware that he's about to be rewritten. And it's frightening. Gary says, Wondered if they'll relate to the 50th anniversary, and particularly the 11th Doctor's interaction with the 10th Doctor, bearing in mind David Tennant's speech in The End of Time. Even if I change, it feels like dying. Everything I am dies. Some new man goes sauntering away, and I'm dead. And, says Gary, the anger, fear and resentment he felt, how might Ten react to actually meeting the new man? Certainly in Time Crash, the Fifth Doctor didn't resent his future self, and the Tenth Doctor commented he loved being five. So how would Eleven respond to his old persona? Well, personas, actually, as is also the other Doctor in the mix. Anyway, says I'm interested in your thoughts. Roll on November. Do we? Sorry, mm. do we know for sure that? Because uh, I I don't watch the net. I'm not looking at the net about this fiftieth thing. Mm. Do we know for sure then that it, the David Tennant Doctor is the tenth Doctor and not the one in the parallel universe? 
I don't think we do, right, but okay. I don't think... <clears throat> yeah. But that's a Russell T. Davis story trope, and I don't think Stephen Moffat would do it, frankly. Mm. Gives a good reason for him coming back, though, doesn't it? But I suppose the Moff can get away with anything timey-wimey. And you know what else? I've seen lots of production pictures of Tennant and Smith, I guess, but not many of Rose. But then I don't think we've seen so many of Clara either. I'm just wondering if Rose is not in it too much. Mm. Maybe mm. as an extended cameo, then in it all the way through. And if it was um, Handy Doctor, whatever you want to call him, and Rose from the alternative universe, she would surely be in it all the way through. Mm. Mm. So maybe that points towards it not being. Mm. Anyway, Gary just quickly says before the end, just had another thought. With the rumour that the Christmas special will see the return of the Cybermen, could this be the Moff's final call to the past at the end of the anniversary year? The Doctor's penultimate regeneration mirroring his first. In other words, you know, the 11th Doctor's last episode being like the 10th planet, the first Doctor's last story. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I like? I like the idea of is... One of the few things I really liked in Nightmare and Silver was that line where the Doctor threatened the Cyber Leader or the Cyber, well, come, the Siberiad, that's it, threatened him yeah. with, um, he said, let's try regenerating, let's see what happens. And I want to see that. Mm. So who knows? I said a real deja vu. Either you've said that recently. I've said it on Facebook, I... actually, in a conversation. Mm. Oh, no, I've had a proper deja vu of hearing you say that. Oh, okay. How weird. I just had a little deja vu moment. Bizarre. Or maybe I said that when we were talking about Nightmare and Silver. No, 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 no. More recent than that. Oh. Uh, anyway, um, yes. Yeah, what would be really good is if, um, you know, that bit in Nightmare and Silver where the Doctor says, let's try regenerating while you've got cyber stuff inside me. Uh, didn't get it quite so much as that. <laughs> but I don't see how that would be relevant to... Well, I see what you're saying. You're saying maybe he regenerates to escape the Cybermen, but... Yeah, I blows all the bits passed. out of him. No, I think that moment's passed. Yeah, okay. They're not going to do that again. No, no. <laughs> A quick email from Doc Whom, and we're out. Uh, this goes back to... Actually, you wrote an email last week about the Happiness Patrol, and he's uh, come up with another thought. And so here it is. He says, Just been thinking some more about what I said last week about the Happiness Patrol being... A satire, of a satire of Thatcherism, or rather not, uh, which is what he proposed. And he came up with a much better way of phrasing what he thinks. He says, If you think about it, imagine if the person running that society had been played by a fat male actor instead of a hatchet-faced actress. Would anyone for a second think that it was a critique of Thatcherism? No. There's nothing in that society, or the plot remotely related to the Thatcher years unless it's merely the idea of a dystopian society per se. Which means that we should very much hope that it wasn't intended to be a critique of Thatcherism, Thatcherism because in that case its entire premise would be that the problem with Thatcherism was that Thatcher was a woman, which would mm. be appallingly misogynistic. I think I probably agree. Actually, I don't think it is. Um, mm. But there is that story there, would work just as well with a man. In the yeah, yeah exactly. It would. But I think there was just there anything. was possibly a nod towards it just by, like you say, casting a woman with that hairdo looking a bit like that. Mm. I, it probably was. Yeah, you're probably right. It's probably more of a nod that, than an. That edges it more towards satire, doesn't it? 
if, it, if it's direct, no, sure. yeah. If it's if it's directly trying to mimic real life, then surely that makes it satirical. Yes. Yeah, but it's not. No. It's just a little nod of the head. Oh no, no. I see what you're saying. You're saying it moves it away from a satire. No, it moves it away from being a satire of Thatcher and more towards a satire of. Well, like I said, as an example, perhaps the sort of middle American dictatorships, you will conform or you will not exist sort of idea. Mm, mm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm. I'm probably being appallingly horrible there myself, but I can't think of a better way of putting it, to be honest. Yeah. At this time of night, after we've been recording for an hour and a half, uh. once again, we didn't talk for 60 minutes about Doctor Who. <laughs> um, okay. Uh Simon Brett, for the next 60 seconds, talk about... Oh, talk about Logopolis. I have very fond memories of Logopolis. I made a point of watching it because I knew it was Tom Baker's last one. And I actually quite like the math side of it. And I know that's an incredibly unpopular thing to, to be talking about. And um, people really don't like Chris Roach Bidmead. But I like the idea of this block transfer computation and the idea that maths, pure maths, can change things in real life. Um, and in that respect, I loved it. And I love the fact that you had the, the tissue compression eliminator being used again. Uh, the idea, lots of lovely ideas of the TARDIS appearing inside the TARDIS and it becoming almost like a a feedback, almost like a visual feedback of TARDISes, TARDI. Um so I think there's a lot to like in there, apart from the fact that it's Tom Baker's last episode. It's a very, very odd episode to have as a last one. And, of course, we've been through this a thousand times of how what a terrible mm. way for the fourth Doctor to die. Pathetic, in fact. Right, you've obviously got a counter on screen in front have of you as well, because you knew exactly when 60 seconds was up then, didn't you? No, I, well, no, I didn't. Did no, no, that oh, okay. was a perfect well, point to stop. So, yeah, there we go. You know, on the subject of the maths thing, I think if we'd have actually seen maths in action in that story, it might have been slightly more interesting. Yeah. But as it was, well, there was a little bit of it with the maths can shrink the TARDIS and the maths can do this and that. But I think we actually see, needed to see it being the maths that was doing these things. Mm. Because by and large, it was just men sitting in alcoves chanting numbers. You actually get more in school uh, reunion, don't you? Mm. Yeah, it didn't sell it to me. Yeah, you're right. In school reunion, I think you do. Yeah. Lee, do you want to do one quickly? <laughs> Not really, but go on then. <laughs> okay, uh, Lee, you've got... Oh, see, I'm looking at the target books on the shelf next to me to pick oh. these, and the one my eyes are lighted upon. You're going to love this. No. 60 seconds on the time monster. Time. <laughs> uh, very funny, actually. I'm writing a short story that's got the time monster in it um, for about one line. Anyway, uh, time monster, that's a... Very bizarre, John Pertwee. It's a bit like The Mind of Evil to me. That it's, I feel a bit detached from it because I never ever saw it at the time. I didn't watch it in a run of B-Sky being the 90s. So it's hard to really comment on it. I think story-wise, it's it's just a piece of fun, isn't it? I really liked it. Apart from all the kind of sexism that runs through it, uh, which is loads. And, um, the was the 1970s. Yeah, and the time chicken moment. And actually, some of Atlantis is a little bit pants, and they've already talked about Atlantis a few times, so, you know, you should have checked their books, really. Uh, generally speaking, it's quite fun. The Minotaur section makes me laugh. It makes me howl every time uh, for the fighting. Now, it's, it's a bizarre one. I, I was wondering whether to show it to my child, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to leave that one for a while. But uh, some great ideas, great moments, some great um, bits with the with the time slippage stuff. Um, that was the best part. You're done. Thank you. 
I'd show it to your child. Actually, the Time Monster's better watched in company. It's great fun. Do you know, in company. I don't know if it's just my mind, but when Lee says about my child, it's like he keeps a child in a cage. He didn't say his son. He said my child. I have a child. My Asian child. Yeah. My Asian child. Yeah. I... And on that bombshell. Um, oh, next week, I think we're going to talk about... I think we're going to look at a writer and look at the stories written by that writer and just talk about maybe the way that writer's Doctor Who progression took place. Yeah, yeah. But we've not chosen a writer yet, so next week we'll be talking about a writer and we'll find out which one when we get there. Sounds cool. And the week after that, I think we'll be doing the other thing that we said we were going to do that I can't remember. My name was JR. My name was Lee. And my name is Simon. And we'll speak again soon. Mm-hmm.